This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. James chapter 1, we're continuing our series entitled Practical Christianity. Uh, the book of James was written uh, really early on uh, in the, uh, uh, the New Testament time. Uh, it was written to a group of uh, Jewish believers that were at the church uh, in Jerusalem, and uh, once persecution came, they scattered. And so the beginning of James talks a little bit about what, what to do uh, in the midst of suffering and how we can actually use our suffering for the glory of God. And so... Um, as James writes, uh, James would have been the, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, and these people who have scattered to different areas, he writes to them. Uh, most uh, Bible scholars believe this was one of the first uh, books to be written in the New Testament, uh, and so it's uh, kind of early on in Christianity, uh, and so a lot of really good stuff here. James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, well, we believe to be the author of this book, and so a lot of really good stuff here. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, verses 9 through 11. Uh, this evening, so uh, James chapter 1, starting in verse number uh, 9. Now, mind you, uh, just for sake of context, as we've been talking so far, verses 1 through uh, 4 speak of suffering. Uh, verses 5 through uh, 7 uh, really speak of asking uh, God for wisdom and having full faith and assurance. Uh, and verse number 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Verse number 9, and so again, if the context here is the idea of suffering, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of grass he shall pass away, for the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Again, as we uh, see that James would have been talking to a group of Jews who had uh, scattered from Jerusalem when persecution came, these were folks who literally left everything. Uh, they, when persecution came, they didn't get a moving truck and a U-Haul and pack up all their belongings and move and get a job transfer to the nearest area. Uh, they basically packed up their, their stuff and grabbed whatever they could and just left. Uh, a lot of them found homes in, uh, in villages and rural areas. Uh, they had during this time probably uh, churches that were meeting in very, very remote areas, maybe some caves and, and things along those lines. But He's writing to a group of people who have left everything for the sake of the gospel. Uh, also, at this point here in, in the New Testament, there wasn't any New Testament scripture that was given to Christians specifically talking about money and finances and how to handle that. Uh, Paul would talk about that in his letters to uh, the churches at Corinth, uh, the church at Corinth, uh, and some other passages on how to deal with uh, finances. Uh, and things along those lines. And so James is kind of laying out some foundation really early on on how Christianity should, uh, should function. That's one of the reasons why we've entitled this series Practical Christianity because uh, James is writing to new Christians. These are people who maybe he had followed Judaism in the past but have now become Christians. And he's kind of laying out for them, hey guys, here's how things are a little bit different for us now that we are Jesus followers and as the, he gives a contrast here between how the poor uh, will respond to trials versus how the rich will respond to trials. But at the end of the day, we, and again, we talk about this so much when we talk about suffering and trials, all trials are meant to drive us to God. They're meant to bring a source of humility. And so uh, entitled tonight's message, Rejoice in Humility. Because the idea behind trials is they bring us to a low state so that we can recognize that God is everything that we have and God is everything that we need. 
And so if you see, first of all, here uh, in verse number uh, eight, I'm sorry, verse number nine, it says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. And so he's speaking of low degree. He's talking about a financial position. He's talking to poor people in this case here. And so he says, first of all, that the poor are exalted. So it's interesting that as he gives a contrast here between the poor and the rich, he says that the poor are exalted and the rich are humbled. In other words, in this case here, we see that trials are basically an equalizer between these folks and the poor are exalted. And he says that they should rejoice. And so the poor should rejoice as their worth is not in their riches. So many times we can buy into the world's way of valuing people based on uh, what type of job they do or what area that they live in or what type of house they live in or what type of car they drive or how much money they might have in the bank and things along those lines. And in God's economy, none of those things really matter. He says, but for the, the poor, poor, let them glory in the fact that they are exalted. And these trials and difficulties bring them to a place of exaltation. In other words, their worth and their status is not based on their financial status. It's based on who they are in Jesus Christ. And so again, we see James really laying down some foundational truths here for these Christians who really have no other training in the Scriptures so far in the fact that they don't have the New Testament the way that you and I have it. Jesus, uh, this would tie in uh, directly with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 3 in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we see in the Bible that, the, uh, that Jesus and all of the writers afterwards place no importance whatsoever on financial status. And so if anything, the poor are actually uh, shown to be uh, at a higher status in the fact that they're not trusting in uncertain riches or they're not using their, uh, their wealth for their own personal gain. Now this has caused some people to errantly think that Christians should take on a vow of poverty. Uh, that it's maybe more noble for Christians to give away everything that they have and live in poverty. Uh, we're not commanded of that anywhere in the scriptures whatsoever. We're commanded to give to those who need uh, are in need. We're commanded to give to the poor. We're commanded to help out those that are in a difficult spot. We're told to use our finances for the kingdom. We're told to invest in eternity. But never do we find in scripture that taking upon oneself a vow of poverty is a godly thing to do or, or even commanded in one way or another. And so, uh, but in this case here, he's telling the poor, I want you to, to understand that you are exalted because uh, of your trials and difficulties that have come your way. Verse number 10, but in the rich that he is made low because it's the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. And so while we see that the poor are exalted, we see that the rich are humbled. And so again, we see that suffering and difficulty brings this equalization, and it goes to show in the kingdom that God doesn't play favorites, and the fact that God doesn't look with, at one person as being exalted over another. James will talk about this a little bit later in the way that we look at people. We shouldn't look at people and, and give them a better seat uh, at the table than someone else based on their financial status or the way that they're dressed or things along those lines. One of the things that, that grieves my heart today is that uh, the many churches these days have gone overboard towards things like racial reconciliation and, and understanding racism and things along those lines, which if we would just come back to the Bible and just preach the Bible, the Bible solves racism, the Bible solves uh, every problem that you and I face because the root problem of that is sin. And if we don't attack the root of the problem as sin, uh, we begin to attack the external symptoms of sin. And when we attack the external symptoms of sin, we don't really deal with the root of the issue. And so when it comes to, uh, to re resolving any issue, whether it be an issue in marriage or interpersonal relationships or sin in my life, we need to make sure that we're not taking care of the fruit problems, but we're taking care of the root problem. 
And the root problem is always a sinful, carnal heart. If you've got problems in your marriage, you might chalk it up to communication problems or different needs or not understanding one another and things like that. that those are external fruit issues. The root issue is a root issue of sin. And, and again, I'm not a therapist or a counselor, but in many of the cases that I've talked to, the root issue of sin in marriages not getting along is generally selfishness of some sort or another. And so again, when we take a look at, in this case here, how do you deal with people of different financial situations and different financial statuses? Uh, the Bible basically equalizes all of them, that they're all the same. And the rich is, is brought low. And the Bible says that he should rejoice in that. So let the brother of low degree, verse number nine, rejoice in that he's exalted. But the rich should glory in the fact that he is made low. And so the rich should rejoice in their humility as they are not ruined by their riches. Again, if the rich man is brought to a time of suffering, he realizes that all the money in the world couldn't possibly fix the problems that he has and brings him to the realization of his own mortality. That life is short and as rich as he might be, he cannot cheat death. And so it's interesting, again, we as Christians who read James' writings 2,000 years later will look at this and go, oh man, that's good, that's good stuff for the rich people, right? <laughs> Can you imagine James 2,000 years ago writing to Christians who are living in homeless encampments, living in caves, who've left everything, who maybe even had to leave family members behind and are living in, literally in the wilderness in a place that they know no one whatsoever. They're gathering together on Sundays to, to pray and to read the scriptures and to talk about Jesus and all that he's doing. And imagine those Christians in those early days could look forward to you and I. And we might consider ourselves poor because the median income in Honolulu is higher than maybe what we bring in. Or maybe because we don't have a two or three bedroom, four bedroom house like everyone else. Or maybe we have to park our cars on the street so we're considered uh, not as affluent as other people. Friend, please understand this. When the Bible speaks of rich people, He's talking to every single solitary person in this church. We are the rich people that the Bible speaks of. Again, because if you take a look at the world's population, 50% of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. That means if you make more than $60 a month, you're automatically in the top 50% richest people in the world. I mean, statistics like that are crazy. If you make $30,000 a year, which in the, in the United States would be considered below poverty level, well below poverty level, if you make $30,000 a year, you're automatically in the top 2% richest people in the world. So when the Bible speaks to the rich people, we look at other people and say, maybe that's not me. I would be considered the poor guy, or maybe I'm, I'm middle class. In, in comparison to the world economy, we are filthy rich. In comparison to the... Uh, Believers in the first century Christian church, we are ridiculously filthy rich. And so please understand, we have to read the Bible in the context in which it was written. And looking at people like you and I, we are considered rich people. Again, someone who would even be considered at a poverty level in the, in the, in the United States would be considered rich by biblical standards. And so when we think of the rich man, we should glory in our suffering in the fact that we cannot trust in our riches. Doesn't matter how much money in the world that you have, that can't fix the problems that you and I have. 
It's interesting to me, too, that uh, while billionaires are sending themselves to space, and this time we would look at those, those people as, those are the rich people. It's interesting to me to note, I don't say it's funny, I say it's interesting for me to note that two of the richest men in the world, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, have both had their marriages fall apart in the last 24 months. Isn't it interesting? All the money in the world and you can't live in harmony with your spouse for, for a lifetime. It's just not enough because you've got to have more. And so regardless of all the money that you have at your disposal, they're still going to die one day. You can't take it with you when you go, but you can send it ahead and invest in eternal riches. But the Bible tells us here, in this case here, for the rich man, that even applies to you and I. We're made low because as the flower of the grass, we're going to pass away too. So we can't trust when times of difficulty come. We can't trust in our finances or what we think we can figure out on our own. We're humbled and we're brought to a low state where we recognize that God is everything that we need. And trials are sent to teach the rich not to trust in their riches. I don't know about you, but many times in my life when difficulties, trials, and suffering come, I ask myself, what can I do to get out of this mess that that I'm in? What can I do to resolve this? How can I fix this? And generally, the majority of the problems that have come my way in life have not been something that somebody could write a check and, and solve their problems. Because if you've ever had any amount of money in your life, and again, I'm talking to a room full of rich people here, you realize that money doesn't really fix anything. I remember my first job that I had, I worked at Moore's Resort on Kentucky Lake in Kentucky. I uh, signed up, it was called a, quote, maintenance position, uh, which basically meant that you cut grass in the morning and early afternoon and you hauled garbage in the afternoon. (laughs) That was maintenance. I don't know what we were maintaining, uh, but uh, that was maintenance. And I made $4 an hour for my first job, and I considered myself fortunate. And I remember my first raise that I got, I got a raise of $4.25, and I thought to myself, man, what do I do with the extra, you know? (laughs) Like... Like, like for me, I mean, I was 16 years old. Like, I had no bills, and everything I made was, was just extra. It's like, man, I got an extra 25 cents an hour. Like, what am I going to do with all that? But then I remember fast-forwarding to, to when Angela and I were first married. I just made uh, E5 in the Navy, and we weren't making a lot of money because we didn't handle our money the way that God that honored the Lord, and we, we spent way more than we, than we had we got ourselves into a mess financially. And I remember at that time being a younger married guy who had no premarital counseling, no uh, financial counseling whatsoever. And I'm doing the budget. And I remember sitting, I could take you to the, the kitchen table that I was sitting at exactly uh, where it at is uh, in the home here, 5408 McMorris Drive. I could take you there today. I'm sitting there at the table. I do the math on our budget. And I thought to myself, these words, if we just had another $100 a month, all of our problems would go away. I remember thinking that. Have you ever thought something like that in your mind? If we just had another hundred bucks, like all of our problems would be solved. But then you fast forward to years later when you're making maybe double of what you're making at the time, and you realize that extra hundred dollars a month didn't do anything. That money never solves any problems. And again, the, the maxim that even the world adopts is that money can't buy happiness. So true. And the rich man has figured that out when trials and difficulties come in the fact that God teaches us that we cannot trust in our financial affluence. We must rely on something greater than that. And when it comes to the world's status system, it's really short-lived. We take a look at verse number 11. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat 
but it withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth and the grace of, this, of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. That when it comes time and the rich man dies, he might have a large extravagant uh, memorial service, but after that, his financial status means nothing whatsoever. Sure, he might give away a lot of his wealth to, to good causes or needy causes and things like that. But when he stands before God, his, his wealth, his status, means absolutely nothing whatsoever to God. Because when the time comes that we pass away, there's only one thing that matters. How have we invested the life that God's given us? Matters, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Do you know for sure that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? When you stand before God, God's going to open up a book called the book of life. If your name is there, you get to heaven. If your name's not there, you stand at the great white throne judgment. After that comes God's judgment. For us as Christians, we'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible says that God will judge our life based on what we did, whether it be good or whether it be bad. We'll either receive reward or we'll receive loss of reward, but God will make, make a determination on how we lived our lives. And at that point, how much money you got left in your bank account does not matter to God. How did you spend your life? That's what matters. For those that die without Christ, who die in their sin, you'll stand at the great white throne judgment. The Bible says that you'll be judged according to your works and you'll be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. But there's judgment coming for everyone. And the world status system does not factor into either one of those judgments whatsoever. And the Bible says, just like the, the grass comes up and it withers away, so is our life. And again, as we read through the book of James, we see kind of this common thread that James keeps running, coming back to. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to read through the book of James all the way yet. But if not, you should do it tomorrow. It'll take you less than 15 minutes to read the whole book. It's so good. But this idea of uh, grass coming up and withering away there's a lot what James will say a little bit later in the fact that life is but a vapor. It appears for a short time and then vanisheth away. This idea of giving status to a person who is uh, maybe a, a more affluent or has more money comes back to James saying, hey, don't give a person a better seat at the table because they're w dressed well or something along those lines. Treat everybody equally. And so we see a common theme as we go through here. So whether it be for the poor or for the rich, their material possessions are inconsequential. doesn't really matter what you have in this life when you stand before God because it's all going to burn one day anyways. It's interesting to note as we read through the Bible, you'll, you'll find, again, this idea of taking a vow of poverty and living at a poverty level isn't something that's ever uh, required, commanded, or even commended in the Bible. Now, God warns against materialism. God war warns against greed. If you read through the book of Proverbs, it is rich with information about people who want to be rich or find great value in material possessions. The Bible speaks a lot about materialism. It speaks a lot about those who desire to be rich. But we also find throughout the Bible that being rich or having nice things or having possessions is not, a, not necessarily a sin. Trusting in your riches, that's a sin. Desiring riches, that's a sin. But if God blesses you, steward your blessings well. Honor the Lord. Use the things that God's given you to bless other people. But what we cannot do is we cannot trust in our riches for sure. 
First Timothy chapter 6, verse number 17, Paul tells Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world. Now again, I'm speaking to everyone in this room here. That they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us all richly all things to enjoy. So again, Paul says, tell the people that are rich not to trust in their riches, but to give glory to God who's given us these things to enjoy. And so that's why I don't think it's a sin for you to, you know, have a cupcake because God's given us all things richly to enjoy, right? Enjoy life. Enjoy a good slice of pizza. Now the problem comes when I overindulge in the things that God's given me. The, things, the problem comes when I trust in the things that God's given me. The trouble comes when I become greedy of having more things, when I desire more blessings than what God has given me. That becomes a problem. Look, if you, if you have a nice car and God's blessed you, if you live in a nice house and God's bless you, if your kids go to a good school and God's bless you, or you're going to a good school, God, God's bless you, that's great. But we should never desire those things at the expense of the kingdom. I, I just have something that, that rubs me the wrong way when somebody chases the things of this world at the expense of the kingdom. Well, I can't afford to tithe because I have a car payment. I can't afford to give the way that God commands me to because my rent is too expensive. I can't afford to bless other people with what God's given me because I'm saving too much for myself. That becomes problematic in the fact that we're not, we're not owners, we're stewards. And God's given us things to manage. But when it comes to, to what God, God says, our material possessions at the end of the day are really inconsequential. Trials have a way of identifying what's truly important to us. Trials have a way of revealing our heart. We took a look at that when we talked about fear uh, last week on Sunday mornings. And then we generally find fear in the things that are really close to us, that hit home to us. Difficulties and trials bring home really quickly what's important to us. I remember when we lived in uh, California. Now, this would probably have been, uh, man, I don't know, 11 years ago almost. <coughs> our daughter, Bikili, was, was one years old. And at the time, we were looking for a home there in, in California, and the housing market was finally starting to cool off a little bit, and uh, we were looking for a house. We had a realtor who was uh, taking and showing us multiple houses, and it was a, kind of a crazy market there, and the fact that people were buying a lot of houses, and a lot like it is now, where you, you find a house you like, and you put in an offer, and there's 10 other offers with it, and you got to make uh, more increasing offers as you go, and it was just a crazy time. And it was one of those times where we're, we're looking at all these different houses and you couldn't keep one track of one from the other. And, and on my phone, I've got a list of all these houses that we're looking at. And uh, my realtor would send me some documents to sign. And I'm not even reading them. I'm just hitting the sign here button on DocuSign. Trying to find a house. Man, it consumed everything we have. My wife's looking. I'm looking. i got other people that are looking for me. We've got a real estate agent that's working for us and everything. And I remember when we went to the hospital and, um, with, with McKeeley. And we took her in and... Uh, Doctors told us that it might be lymphoma cancer. They didn't know. They were going to have to run a lot of tests. And probably about a week before we ever got an answer as to, to what, how to proceed. Uh, she was admitted to the hospital. She ended up having surgery. I remember while we were sitting in the hospital and uh, my daughter's getting prepped for surgery, I got a phone call from our real estate agent. He said, I just found the house for you. They haven't put it on the market yet. We need to get an offer in before they put it on the market. And I said, not now. And he's like, you don't realize we're going to miss not now. And that moment, you realize what's really important. My daughter's going in for surgery. I don't care about where I live. 
I don't care what our address is. I don't care what neighborhood it's in. I don't care what amenities it has. I don't care what the bathroom looks like. I don't care what kind of stove there is in the kitchen right now. None of those things matter. And we told our real estate agent, hey, look, we're just going to take a break for the next six months because we don't know what we're going through or what we're facing. And we would go through the next six months of a lot of doctor's appointments and blood draws and Children's Hospital LA and, and, and have her put under anesthesia and doing all kinds of tests and stuff like that. And not one time in that six-month period do we think to ourselves, huh, I wonder what the housing market's like. Never. You know why? Because trials reveal what's really close to our heart. And for the rich man that goes through suffering and is afraid of losing his riches, that's exposing what's really important to him, his, his money, his status. And so it's interesting the way that God sends us trials not only to drive us to himself, but also to expose our heart, what's really important and so again, as James kicks off this letter that he writes to Christians that are scattered abroad, he tells them, uh, brethren, consider it a joy, a reason to rejoice, a reason to praise God when you go through difficulties and suffering, because it's going to bring forth a really good fruit in your life. For all of us, whether we be rich or whether we be poor, our value that we have in Christ is in the riches of heaven. The greatest thing that I own, I can't transfer it to anybody else. I can't leave it in my will. The thing that I value the most in my life, while I value my family, while I value certain material possessions that have sentimental value, while I value my church family, things along those lines, the things that, that, that really matters to me I have Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have God as my Father. I have the Holy Spirit residing inside of me. I have the Word of God. True value for us is found in the riches that we have in heaven. The fact that I get to spend eternity with Jesus Christ forever. The fact that Jesus loved me and gave His life for me. The fact that God loved me and gave His Son for me. The fact that Jesus took upon himself the form of a slave so that he who knew no sin could become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You think of the value of something like that. We think of the value of that compared to the value of a brand new car. <laughs> it's not even in the same category. The riches of heaven versed versus a brand new house at the end of a cul-de-sac in a beautiful brand new neighborhood. I'm sorry, I don't see the value in it. Because we as Christians are to be eternally minded. The Bible is so crazy in the fact that it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And again, God has blessed me far beyond anything that I deserve. Again, according to the world standards, I'm, I'm filthy rich. According to first century Christianity, I'm ridiculously wealthy. Compared to our world, average old middle class. But here's the thing, my value is not in my socioeconomic status, my value is in the value that God places upon me. My value is in the riches of heaven. My value is in the fact that God saw me despite my worthlessness 
and chose to send his son to die for my sins. That's what I, I revel in. You see, sometimes we get Christianity backwards in, we, in the fact that we think that God got a really good deal the day that he saved us. And again, we get this idea that, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's true because I've shared the gospel this way sometimes, you know, that for God so loved the world and, you know, you could insert your name there. For God so loved Anthony that he gave his only begotten son. And if you were the only person on earth, God would have, have sent his son to die for you because you are loved and valued by God. But then I think we take it to an unhealthy level when we say God looks at you and he loves you so much and he loves everything about you and you are so beautiful to him and you are so valuable to him and you are so great to him. And it's just like, hey, that kind of beautiful, you know? No, God looks at you and sees your filthy, disgusting, repugnant sin and chooses to love you despite that. Because just like the Apostle Paul, we have to say, I know in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There's nothing lovely about me to God. There's nothing valuable to me to God, the, the, the creator of the universe, sees no inherent value in me, a worthless, pathetic sinner who has nothing to offer me. That's why God's gift that he gives us of Jesus Christ is called grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. And so while it's not wrong to say that, that God loves me individually and God would have sent his son to die for me individually and things like that, the gospel is not about me. The gospel is about the glory of God. The gospel is about the great name of Jesus Christ. And God gets glory by saving sinners. God doesn't choose us because we're valuable to him. God saves us for the glory of his name. And so when we look at this, for you and I, we need to make crystal clear in our minds that we're not chasing after the things that the world chases after. Because God has a way of bringing us all back to baseline level. If you're poor, you're exalted. If you're rich, you're brought low so that we all understand that the only value that we have is value in eternal things. That's what this passage says. Let the poor glory in the fact that he is exalted. Let the rich glory in the fact that he is brought low so that at the end we recognize our only value that we have is in eternal things. Maybe you're here tonight and your values just don't line up with what the Bible says we should value. If you're a Christian, you should change your value set. I'm not going to chase after worldly success. I'm not going to chase after the things that the world has to offer. I'm going to chase after Jesus. And should God give me success I'll glorify, glorify him with it. I'll make his name great through it. I'll use this as an opportunity to worship and bring glory to God. But if he doesn't, I trust him. I love him. I've received more in this life than I'll ever possibly deserve. Or maybe you don't value the things that the Bible says because you're not a Christian. Maybe there's never been a time, a date, a place in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior and this idea of valuing the things that God values just seems crazy to you. Maybe you need to be saved. The Bible says it's appointed unto die, to man once to die after that the judgment. If you die in your sin, you die without Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. That's facts. But Jesus died to save you from your sin. Again, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made righteous before God. And if you'd be willing tonight to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you could be saved tonight. 
And that's the beginning of a total change. It's not overnight. I got saved when I was nine years old, but didn't begin to grow as a Christian until I was in my early 20s. But I remember my growing and stretching times that God had for me at the age of 24, 26, where my God, lowercase g, God was materialism. I thought stuff would make me happy. I thought a nice car or a fancy vacation or a bigger house or new gadgets would make me happy, and I found that all those things were empty. I thought maybe having a sense of success, the adoration of my peers, would bring some level of satisfaction, but I found that it brought nothing whatsoever. And as a young Christian who was young in my faith, I had to change my value system, value the things that God valued, and realize that the things that I have of real value in this life can't be passed on to someone else, but I can teach them where to find the source of that joy. Again, I can't give, give to people salvation. I can't give to people the Holy Spirit. They've got to find that for themselves, but I can, I can point them to the right direction. I can point them, point them to the source of all joy. And so, if you're a Christian tonight, let's, let's begin to value the things that God values. If you're not a Christian tonight, tonight's your opportunity. It's not a matter of joining our church or becoming a Baptist. It's about knowing for sure your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. If you've never had an opportunity to do that, do that tonight. Let's live every single day until the day that we see Jesus recognizing that what we really desire are things of eternal value. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart.